This is the PR Pod, the podcast that brings you expert tips for working in PR and finding your niche. With your host, Brooke Burns. Welcome to the PR Pod, the essential podcast for emerging public relations professionals. This episode, we're delving into humanitarian affairs, and I'm joined by Belinda Gerd, who's in the strategic communications team focusing on campaigns and public advocacy at the United Nations. Belle, welcome to the PR Pod. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and excited to impart, hopefully, some very useful information. I have no doubts that you will. Um, So we met, I don't know, at least seven or eight years ago when you were in Sydney and you were the PR manager for Virgin Atlantic Airways um, for Australia and was there a broader region? Yeah, Yeah, no, Australia. Australia and Asia Pacific. Yeah. Asia Pacific. And so then you went from there to corporate comms, I think, and Virgin Atlantic in New York mm-hmm. and then on to United Nations. So you've had, mm. um, and that's just three of a handful of roles you've had. Um, mm. And I think they sound really impressive. I imagine you've had some amazing experiences, but you didn't get started in PR. Did you study design? I did. Yes, I did. How did that come about? What made you at that point in your life, which I imagine would have been, you know, university or high school going into university, think that design was going to be your future? Um, Very good question. Okay, so it's funny, right? When we're in high school, we sort of get, um, we get shuffled by people and teachers and parents and it might not necessarily be, the thing that we want to do or that we know that we want to do. And for me, that's what it was. I was good at art and I was good at design. um, And I decided that that's probably what I should do because it was something that I enjoyed and people told me I was good at it. So I did a Bachelor of Design and I was actually really bad. (laughs) I really, (laughs) I really didn't pass. I mean, it's funny because... I knew, I knew as soon as I started, I think I was a year in and I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do because what I wanted to do to express myself creatively was write. Every time I had an assignment, all I wanted to do was write the answer and write these um, amazing stories or, or write what it is that I was feeling. And I was also good at English at school, but I have to say I persevered and it was hard, but I knew that getting a bachelor of something was the best thing to do at the time and I mean design is fun we did we did we did great things so it wasn't it wasn't um it wasn't tedious I had a great time in my undergrad it just wasn't what I wanted to do so once I finished my bachelor's I was I, I left I left um I left Australia and I went to London for a couple of years because I thought what the hell what the hell am I doing <laughs> And I I mucked around in London for a while and did some really odd jobs. And it's funny, I read Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity when I was in London. And I said to myself when I read that book, I really want to work for this company. Something resonated in the culture, in the way that he was explaining himself, how he came to start, how he valued his um, staff. And that was it. I read the book, decided that's where I wanted to work. Um, And I put that idea away for a really long time. I traveled and I tried to discover myself as we all do. And I would highly recommend taking a year off to do that. Um, I think it's invaluable. And then I came back to Sydney after a couple of years, because at the time you could only get a two year visa for London. Um, and I just did odd jobs. There was no, there was literally no formula, no structure. It was not, 
like, woohoo, I've, I've hit my career in London. It was like, cool, let's have some fun and let's just see the world. And then I came back and look, I don't know how this happened. And it's either, you know, it's serendipitous. There's a little bit of fate, I suppose. And I think that that's the key, right? If, if doors open, walk through them, say yes. And then just make sure you've got the skill and the determination to, to back up the sort of opportunities that are presented to you. And that's what happened to me. I had a, I started with a recruiter when I landed back in Sydney and she was like, Hey, do you want to do this temp job for two weeks at Virgin money doing an assistance role? And I was like, money, Virgin money. I know nothing about finance, but sure. I'll, I'll do, I'll do some, I need some money. Let's do it. And was it a comm style role? No, it was, I, I think I was filling in for a personal assistant and doing diary management, which was something I did when I was in London. You know, you sort of start out as a PA. Um, so it wasn't comms. It was definitely just assisting someone in the, in the company, um, which was great. And then all of a sudden I had my foot in the door. Uh, and I think because I really fit in the culture into the culture and and I really I really worked hard when I was there because I wanted to stay. How did a comms role come about once you were in Virgin Money? Did you did you look at that department or the people that worked in that department and think they're the, they're doing the kind of things that would interest me? You know what? I think I just started at the same time as I did with um, this temp role at Virgin Money. I knew that I wanted to do something in writing. And so I started my master's in journalism. Um, so I knew that the lessons I'd learned from my design degree, which was that I wanted to write, uh, should follow through into some type of other masters. And so I started a grad dip at UTS doing journalism. And then I you know, concurrently got this position with Virgin Money and they saw that I was doing the degree. They saw that I was doing the, the, the masters and they offered me a position as the PR assistant because I think that position had just opened up at the same time. So I was able to transition from just doing an assistance role into comms, into public relations, like as my very first comms role, um, starting in the marketing team. And again, I think it was a little bit of, you know, serendipity, but it was also a little bit of tenacity uh, because I knew it was a good opportunity. And I, and I remembered thinking that I wanted to work for this company, um, this group. And so, yeah, it all sort of fell into place, which is really, it's really hard, right? When you're talking to, to young people who are starting, starting out just to be like, well, it just happened. Um, so I think, I think the best way of looking at these types of things is again, what I was saying is opportunity. So if you can create your own opportunity with a little bit of luck, then really doors open. And that's been the trajectory for my entire career. I have been in the right place at the right time, but I have been able to step through the open door and um, and show my worth by working hard, by being good at what I do and by listening um, and by, I think, by, you know, being happy and having a good personality. It, it sort of all really works towards being able to stay in, in jobs and progress. And, you know, I've only worked in two companies, essentially, Virgin and the United Nations, and I've just accelerated within those um, because of the timing and because I worked hard. 
Yeah. I mean, my entry into PR was um, uh, was similar in, in the sense that there was luck involved. And um, I, I've mentioned this story on the podcast before, but I did, I think, three internships when I was at uni. One was at a uh, fashion PR agency because I thought that sounded glamorous and I always wanted to work in once I so I studied PR and marketing at university and I always liked this idea of working somewhere fun and glamorous I didn't want to be the fun glamorous person I just wanted to work somewhere that was so I thought well fashion a fashion um a fashion uh, company sounds very glamorous hated every second of it there is I'm just I don't live and breathe fashion so that was disastrous however when I was there the PR manager left um and they needed someone to manage their PR for three months. So I was in my second year at uni and um, the owner of the company, which was like a national, it was Liz Davenport, which was a, it was a mm. national company at the time. Um, she said, would you mind filling in? I mean, I'm a second year uni student. I wasn't exceptional. I wasn't getting high distinctions in my, I was just in the right place at the right time. And I imagine wow. I did a terrible, terrible job. But anyway, that was, <laughs> that was the first very kind of cool experience. Um, I also did an internship at, the West Coast Eagles. So for those who are in Australia, that's an Australian football uh, club. And then the third one I did was a television station here in Australia. And that was for, I think, three months. And then they extended it for six months because I was happy to, all unpaid. Um, And then Wind Television happened to be based in the same uh, building as Channel 10, which is one of the five free-to-air broadcast um, stations here in Australia. And because they were in the same building um, and, you know, they were metres apart uh, when the PR assistant job came up at Wynn Television, um, I got that going from Channel 10 to Wynn. So, um, again, right place, right time, but there was no one else in university that I can recall, certainly out of my peers, that did as many internships as I did. I am talking talking about crossing the hallway. Um, That's how I got into Atlantic. Same thing. Mm. So I went from this money, Virgin Money and Virgin Atlantic were in the same building. And obviously we, you know, we were all friendly to each other. Yep. And went to the same sort of, you know, afterward drinks and what have you. But same thing when, when money, um, it went through a huge redundancy as Virgin seems to do, <laughs> uh, periodically, uh, you know, the PR manager, Atlantic came across the hallway and was like, hey, Belle, do you want to come and do the assistance role here, the PR assistance role here, because we need someone um, and you know the brand. And and really for a brand like Virgin, it was more around knowing the brand and fitting in with the brand than it was the skill level. Not to say that I didn't have any skills, but I certainly wasn't, you know, same thing, wasn't brilliant, um, just loved the brand and understood how to communicate about it because it's a specific way of, you know, communicating about Virgin. And that's how I got the second sort of leg up in the company, just being across the hall and, well, hopefully, you know, doing the right thing and people noticing me. But it's funny what what being in the right place at the right time can have. But I do have to say, you know, you've got to back it up. You've got to be able to. Absolutely. Yeah, you need the skill. I mean, I don't even know. I, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm the best PR professional. I'm like, I'm going to. No, me neither. Yeah, be super honest. My writing skills are not great. Like, really, I'm better suited to write for a Virgin company than I am for a United Nations company. Like, you know, my team at the UN 
checks everything I do because I'm not a great writer. Um, And that's okay. Like, that's the thing. Like, we all have to stop being thinking, especially coming into the workforce, that we have to be perfect at everything because that's not what happens when your, your career trajectory doesn't rely specifically on you being good at writing and reading and being in front of the camera or, you know, whatever it is. You just... It's, I think it's a little bit of everything. So tell me about working at Virgin because um, obviously, well, I'd say obviously, but, you know, certainly I, my understanding of the brand that it's very dynamic, it's very engaging, they um, they delivered or um, their campaigns, the really kind of creative mm-hmm. and not just like a standard creative but really above and beyond, really bold campaigns. But what was mm-hmm. it like actually working inside a company like that? I mean, this is where I really cut my teeth and I'm so grateful for my seven or whatever years it is at Virgin, um, at the Virgin Group because that that type of company, that's where you want to learn how to do a campaign that's going to or, or any type of comms that is going to disrupt industries. Um, and that's the type of communications I like to do. And it's the same at the UN, right? There's advocacy and then there's communications and you need to really make waves. And that's the basis of any communications or PR or marketing is that you have to stand out. And working at Virgin, I mean, it, it was literally the best time of my entire life. I had <laughs> the most fun and learned so much and was given so much freedom to make mistakes and to learn and to and to run with what I um, I thought was right for the brand, and it was it's the same thing. I mean, our marketing manager at Atlantic went on on mat leave, and I did sort of an act up role, which was you know two or three years into the company, maybe not even, which was a huge responsibility. So I was running Australian comms with um, with the team, working with creative agencies, launching new campaigns. I think at the time. Atlantic switched from sort of individual local marketing to a global branding uh, formula and we had to implement that across the regions, which was massive Um, but amazing because we were working with YNR at the time, I think. And I think that's the important thing, right, is that you need to have an agency and some partnerships and some people that really understand the the vision of what it is you're trying to achieve and then everything yeah. sort of yeah. back from that um but it was fun it was fast paced we always pushed the boundaries like we looked at our creative we looked at our wording we looked at our tone of voice we were like how do we make this stand out more how do we push this a little bit where do we need to pull back how do we put the customer first which is you know virgin's ultimate sort of mission statement is customer first and how do we be a little bit disruptive and cheeky at the time, at the same time? Which is, you know, there is a certain type of person that can work at Virgin because you have to have that little bit of, I mean, we would say je ne sais quoi because we had a campaign, you know, for Virgin about that, which is a little bit of, a little bit of push, pull, a little bit of zest, a little bit of caution, but also not so much at the same time. Yeah, a bit cheeky. It's really hard to formulate. Um, so, and that's across all of the companies. So it was great. I had a great time. And then I, I, I moved from that role, from the ACT UP role to looking after PR for Asia Pacific, which was scary as all hell, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> it was a huge role for such a little person. Um, but I had a great team. So, and a really great mentor at the same time who really helped me push my boundaries. I mean, I was scared the entire time. <laughs> 
was the mentor within Virgin somewhere or how did the, how did the mentor factor into your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was our, um, I had a couple actually at Virgin, but at the time when I moved to manage the region, it was the, um, I can't remember what they call them, global head of comms or global head of PR for Virgin Atlantic at the time. And he was great. I would ring him and, and say, what do you mean you need me to write a strategy for Asia Pacific? What does that, like, what does that even look like? And he would sit there on the phone from the UK and say, okay, let's open the, let's open the strategic plan. This is what you need to do and really would walk me through it. And that was the same said for our marketing manager. Uh, she took me from PR assistant to trade marketer to marketing manager and then I sort of replaced her when she went on mat leave. And she would sit there after work with me and say, um, you know, here's the, key, here's the key things you need to know about marketing. Here are the five things that make a really great advertising campaign. And we would sort of have mini tutorials every now and then after work, which was invaluable. And I think that's, I've had that through my career. I've been very lucky to have strong um, women and men who have been willing to give me their time to push me in ways that I haven't been able to see myself. And that is absolutely key in a career. Any career is to find those people you want to be like and be like them and ask them to help you be like them. And that's not to say their personality, but just their, um, the way they conduct themselves at work, right? We all need templates. We all need gurus. We all need guides. Uh, and that's, we do not need to do any of this on our own. I think that's really important. I think you touched on something that is really important, especially at the start of your career, but any, at any point in your career is the power of being vulnerable and acknowledging your weaknesses mm. and not just acknowledging your weaknesses to yourself, which is the first part, but also then verbalizing them and saying, you've asked me to do this. I don't know how to do it. Um, I've done some research. I can't figure it out or I can't, it's not making sense or I, or I don't know how to do it in the style that this company is wanting it from. Can I have some guidance in that? I think if you, um, you know, and, and certainly there's, there's something to be said for, there's a lot to be said for having initiative and trying to figure out the answer on your own, but it's finding that balance between acknowledging I, I, I it's going to take me more time to try and figure this out and it's going to be less beneficial for my time and my company's time versus acknowledging, putting your hand up and saying, is there, is there a better way to do this? Because I'm not quite sure what that is. And look, I think that's you've hit the nail on the head and when I have interns or if I have people that are in my team that are, are working, um, I don't like saying for me, but with me so that we achieve the same thing, I try and impart the things that I've learned from people above me as well. And that is try, try. And if you really can't work it out and you're not happy with what you're doing or you're really confused, ask, ask, because you shouldn't be working in a place the way you can't ask questions. That is not the place you want to be working. You need to be able to grow, but you, you need to be able to exactly show your vulnerabilities. I mean, I've had some great interns so when you work in the u.s especially you know at the un um you get some really high caliber interns they're coming from amazing universities amazing people amazing tenacity amazing um education and i think that that's sort of what makes a really attractive uh worker is someone that can come in that has a great grounding that will try and can sort of think a little bit ahead of everyone else 
but then can also come and say, hey, Belle, I don't get this. Like, what do I do? And then I can give them my opinion. It's really, um, that's really sort of, that's what you're looking for. Mm. I heard something the other day, I think it was only last week, um, during another podcast record and the person I was chatting to talked about how you can only delegate tasks to people who know how to do those tasks. That's, that's what delegation is. If they don't know how to do that task, you can't delegate it to them. Um, so there's a difference between delegation and then supervising people in their work. And, um, you know, she talked about this sense of delegation. People just, you know, fire out tasks here, there and everywhere but without providing that proper grounding in, okay, you've never done this before, a quick Mm. summary of how to do it is not going to be enough. You're not going to understand why you're doing it. You don't want to understand, you know, you might not understand the different layers of it. So, Mm. um, and and I think that can be flipped when you are in the position where you are being delegated to and you're at the start of your career, you're an intern or you're in, you know, a graduate position, um, it's perfectly fine to go back and say, look, I know you've given me some context of this, but... It's it's just not really resonating with me. So would you mind just going over it with me one more time? And asking for, I mean, I didn't do this at the beginning of my career because, um, you know, I think I did what everyone does when they start out. You know, you think you've been to university and you think you should, you have to know everything. Uh, And so you just get work on top of work on top of work and you think, oh my God, I'm drowning. Like, how do I deal with this? Uh, And I think just ask we when is this due why is this due? how do you want Mm -hmm. me to do this what's my prioritization you've given me five different things how do I prioritize this and honestly people love giving advice we love to tell you how to do your job (laughs) we've just done it for 20 years so you know people asking questions is our chance to be able to say sure this is what worked for me um I mean look and I'm also not gonna there's you know there's there are people out there that are hard to work for. And it's scary when you start out and you have these really powerful people that are around you or people that have had, you know, extensive experience. And, and you know, sure, in my career I've definitely had situations where it's not been nice um, with people because personalities don't necessarily always get on. But I think it's really important to understand your own integrity and to know that asking questions is absolutely valid and okay and that you're not supposed to know everything. Even now, after this amount of time in my career, I do not know everything. And I have to ask questions all the time still. And now I'm just more okay with it because, sure, you're going to help me or you're not going to help Um, And I think just to not, you know, when you're starting out, not to think that you don't know anything because the thing that you bring to that company and the way that you write and the way that you communicate is what they want to see. And perspective, you, you're bringing a fresh set of um, eyes, a fresh set of ideas, a fresh set of experiences. If you're male, if you're female, if you are from different countries, whatever it may be, you're adding something to that conversation of two people or four people or of 10 people that no one else has. You're, you're completely unique with that. So there's certainly power, I think, in, um, on, in being comfortable with that and being who being comfortable with who you are and what you've got to add, but, but at the same time recognizing you are a sponge and you are there yes. to soak up information and you need to just keep on storing away that information because there will be times when you need to draw on that and at least you've got that and you've taken in, in taken in um, an experience or you have observed something and then you can apply it to your own life. 
Exactly. I mean, you, yes, I'm going to say this as a non-millennial anymore, but please listen, please be a sponge. <laughs> please don't come in and tell me that you've got 40,000 Instagram followers and you know how to do, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to say that <laughs> as an old person, it is really, it, we all worked really hard. And so being a sponge and listening and asking the right questions is absolutely more valuable than I don't know how to sugarcoat this than being a know-it-all, right? Like no mm. one wants that. Um, but at the same time, your unique perspective is important just at the right time. I mean, it's really difficult. I can hear myself being totally contradictory and everyone's going to listen and say, okay, what, what am I doing? What? <laughs> but I think you feel it out, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to find out how, so when you transition from, Australia to the state so you're still working with Virgin at that time was that did that come about because you wanted to move to the states and you were able to transfer mm-hmm. with them or did you move there and then you happened mm-hmm. to get a job there that's the first part mm-hmm. of the question the second part then I guess is um, I imagine you're in a, in a state of vulnerability there yes you've got experience in Australia yes it's very valuable experience but how does that how does that place you in a totally different mm-hmm. territory mm-hmm. really good question it was a little bit of everything. So here's my other thing. I've always said yes to things and I've always tried to create opportunity and open doors. Um, I loved my job at Virgin Atlantic and honestly, I didn't, there was no reason for me to leave. I absolutely loved getting up and going to work every day. And that's another clue. You have to get up and love what you do because you're doing it so often. And I loved it. And I loved everyone that I worked with. But um, at 31, I was like, okay, cool. I, I want to move to New York. I, I went there when I was 21 and I fell in love with the city and I just had something inside of me that was calling me to go to New York. And I don't know whether it was the idea of staying in Australia and knowing how my life was going to turn out per se, or if it was just this sort of sense of adventure. So I left Atlantic um, and I, you know, I quit my job, uh, which was really hard. It was a really hard decision. And I packed my bags and I went to New York and I thought, I'll get some agency experience. I've been client side my whole career. So why don't I try and get some agency experience? Um, Oh my God, it took me, wow. It took me so many months to even get callbacks. One thing I'll say about it. Yeah, it was, it was really um, confronting. It was very confronting because when you work for some, you work for a company like Virgin Atlantic, you think it would open some doors. Um, but it did not because Americans want you to have American experience uh, and they want you to know the market, especially in PR, right? Like you need to know, you need media contacts. Uh, so it was really difficult. I will say one thing about New Yorkers is they will bend over backwards to help you. I had many, many coffee meetings, many informational meetings, they call them. You just meet people who then put you in touch with more people who put you in more in touch with more people. And look, we did that for like six or seven months, I think. Uh, I didn't work. I worked at a I worked in a um in a restaurant and earned like five dollars <laughs> an hour, which is their minimum wage, whilst I looked for work. And look, I, I I'll be honest, I obviously wrote to Atlantic when I was there and said, Hey guys, I've just moved over. And I did that I did that after I moved because I didn't I didn't I just wanted to go. So I packed everything up, left, and told them I was coming. And honestly, again, it was serendipitous. Um, six or seven months in, the comms manager left. He's a very good friend of mine who actually works in Australia as well now. And 
they called me and they were like, cool, do you want to come in? Do you want to sit for an interview? Um, I think I sat for an interview, which was great, right? It was just like, cool, here's everything that I've done. It's perfect. And, and I got the job. And, you know, they it was great because they had to organize a visa for me, which is difficult in and of itself when you're going to America, although maybe not so much anymore with the E3. So they did that and, and sort of I was away and, and doing corporate comms for Atlantic, which it's different. Yes, it's different, of course, because it's America and, and it's a little, it's, it's, um, what is it? It's not as laid back. It's much more formal, especially for corporate comms. And so I was pushed a little bit there as well um, in my skill set, which was great. But essentially it was still virgin. So I was still working with, you know, people that I knew and, and language that I understood. And I just I just got out there and made my own contacts. I Starting in a new job as a PR person and not having media contacts is not a prohibitive thing. It's an actually, it's an actual great opportunity to ring all the journalists and say, hey, I've now taken over from such and such. Here's my contact details. What are you interested in? And it gives you this really fresh start when you're talking to journalists and trying to create relationships. Um, so, yeah, it was a little bit of the right time in the right place after after six or seven months of really trying. And did you get any, besides obviously securing that job, that job with a virgin um, mm. at the end, when you were meeting with these PR agencies, um, what did you learn from that experience or what would what could you pass on to people who are in a similar position that's moving that moving from a country to America with a, like you had some really strong experience behind mm. you what do you wish you knew before you started that process I really would have done a little bit of legwork beforehand before you actually arrived. Before I before I arrived in New York. I think it's really smart to understand the landscape and I think it's really smart to probably reach out to a lot of people just before you go, not too long because people aren't interested if you're not going to arrive like the next week or the next month. Uh, but I do think even reaching out to recruiters or setting myself up a little bit before I landed would have been a smart idea because I really got there and had to start from scratch whilst paying rent and trying to feed myself, you know, on whatever limited savings I had. So I would advise trying to just speak to as many people as possible. I mean, I get a million requests on LinkedIn these days for some advice or some contacts, and I'm more than willing to do that. So I think a lot of people are in the same boat. Uh, Again, New Yorkers are really happy to help you. Uh, so I think that, and I think having a resume that is less than two pages, people, they will not take anything more than two pages in America. So it needs to be the high, when you're doing your CV, you need to highlight the things that you've achieved. They don't care about the responsibilities and what you've done in your day to day. They want to know what you've achieved whilst you're in that role, which is actually a great way to do a CV. That's really all it should be is what did you get out of this and what did you give back? Uh, so I would have done that uh, because I had a five-page resume, uh, resume when I, yeah, when I when I arrived, which is never a good idea, never. So I got that cut down. Um, what else would I say? I think meeting people, just meet people. Do not go to any new country if you are not willing to put yourself out there and say yes to a million coffees. Because honestly, that's how I got close closer to a role than Atlantic was meeting people and 
you know, they want to see your personality. They want to see what you're good at if you're in comms. And I also did a lot of networking. So join the Australian groups, join the PR groups, join the comms groups on Facebook and go to all the networking events. And I hate to say it, I you know, America runs on internships. So whilst we can do internships here, you get maybe you get paid, maybe you don't, but you live at home. Uh, they will ask you to do internships. Maybe not at my, I was 31 or 32, so maybe not at my level, but at the, at the beginning in your 20s, they're going to expect you to do two or three months for nothing. Uh, so be prepared to do that, which probably means save a little bit more or get a job working five dollars an hour as a waitress. Also okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how did the transition then happen for you moving over to the United Nations? Gosh, I hate answering these questions because every time you ask me, it's just, I'm going to say luck, right? I was in the right place at the right time. Um, so with giving that a little bit more context, I think putting out into the universe what you want to do and speaking about what it is that you wish really helps. And when I went to university to do my journalism masters, of which, by the way, people, I did not finish. I only got to the grad dip and then I was like, cool, I've got my job at Atlantic. Why would I finish my masters? That was a mistake. <laughs> I wish I'd finished it because I don't like things unfinished and I think it would have been really handy, especially with my role at the UN. That said, it was fine. Um, oh, by the way, I would definitely check the criteria for a visa for the E3. I think you either need a master's or X amount of experience, maybe seven years. You need a specific rung on the on the ladder to get right. it. So you can't just rock up and, and just be out of university and hope you'll get an E3. You, you can't. So just check that uh, because I was lucky enough to have X amount of experience um, instead of the masters. So uh, once when I was at school at UTS, I just I was speaking to you know my classmates and I was telling them that I wanted to work at the United Nations. It was something that I wanted to do since I was 21. So I I thought about that. I wrote about it. It was kind of one of my career aspirations. Did absolutely nothing to facilitate that right I didn't do international relations I didn't study another language it was just something that I wanted to do and one of my good friends was working at the United Nations now she'd be really interesting to talk to because I don't know how she got the role but she was the one that opened the door for me she was moving back to Australia and she said to me Belinda I know you're here and you wanted to work for the UN why don't you apply for the role and see where you go so that was it she gave me the opening to apply uh, and I applied and it was, um, it was, it was an, a, an interview, it was a CV, it was the concept for a campaign. I had to come up with a campaign concept for World Humanitarian Day, which was their big annual celebration and one that I have now run for far too long, seven years, uh, and put together a presentation, which I did. And so... Pretty comprehensive. Yeah, it was huge. And of course, you know, that makes sense because it's the UN, they want to know that they're getting what they're getting. And I think, again, I just had an open door and I made sure that I worked my ass off to make, to get, to get where I needed to go. So I really studied for the interview because it's a, a star-based interview, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, what happened when you're in your situation and made sure my presentation was kick-ass. And I got the job, which was shocking because I was not prepared for that. And so I had to tell Virgin Atlantic after seven months that I, I couldn't say no to the UN. And I was lucky because the United Nations was looking for a consumer-facing marketing person, which was exactly where my skills lie. 
um, not in advocacy, not in humanitarian advocacy, not in anything humanitarian, but mostly just how do you get a really complicated message out to people so that they listen and they take notice and eventually they take action. And that's what got me in. And then I really had to learn about the humanitarian sector and what advocacy is and theory of change when you're applying it to communications because it's an extremely different skill set than just consumer comms, than just, um, you know, selling a product to people that already want it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I imagine that's where a lot of the challenges lie working for any kind of humanitarian business or with a charity is that there are so many important valuable lessons or messages that you're trying to impart as are everybody else and they are equally important or perhaps some have more importance at certain times of the year etc but trying to get cut through I imagine is really challenging was there anything from your virgin experience that put you in a really good place to be able to I guess um, make that your strong suit Yes, I think my grounding in Atlantic and the way they do comms is really what set, sets me, continues to set me apart a little bit from everyone else, um, especially when you're trying to engage what they call a global audience, which I loved when I started because I was like, great, who's your target audience, right? Like number one question, who's your target audience? What do you know about them? Their answer was like, everyone. I'm like, cool, okay, (laughs) that's where we're going to start. So we worked to develop um, a target audience profile and that's where my strength came through because that's everything that Atlantic does is they know their audience inside and out. They know what words to use. They know how to trigger, you know, purchasing power. They understand how to get brand um, affinity. So I, I was able to bring all of that to, to OCHA. So I don't work for the UN. I work for the Secretariat and I work for the Humanitarian Organization, which is OCHA, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, uh, which basically coordinates uh, response, humanitarian response on the ground in natural disasters and protracted crises. So we work in Syria and Yemen and South Sudan and all of the big crises and we coordinate actors, i.e. other UN agencies, to respond uh, with food, shelter, water, but sort of the general thing that you need to help people sort of through a crisis. And then the cons around that is advocating for the humanitarian aspect, which is the people. How do we get people to notice the vulnerable communities within these countries and to care for them? And that's a really hard job. And you're right, we're up against our own organizations up against UNICEF and UNHCR and all of those ones trying to get these advocacy messages out. But we're also up against empathy fatigue and giving fatigue, especially now, you know, no one has anything left to give outside of themselves. And so really trying to understand how to tap into empathy and compassion kind of became the North star for my career at the UN. So developing a target audience, understanding how we work with people that are interested in humanitarian affairs, what it is that makes them interested and care, which comes down to compassion and empathy, and how we trigger that without showing babies that are hungry, right? Like the 1980s extended belly baby from Africa. That's not what we want to do. So we've really tried to evolve that over the last seven years and 
and come into people's spaces as opposed to asking them to come into ours and really showing them what they can do with their everyday actions. And how has your role changed from that first role that you accepted, which was how long ago now? Five years? Yeah, 2014, I think. I started on the back of 2013, 2014. Okay, yeah. so how, how has your role um, changed evolved. from then to now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I think we've I've evolved with the communications team. We've been together the whole time, so we have the same people. A few, a few have come and a few have gone, but essentially the same core team. And when you're with a core team like that, you move through an evolution together. And we started with the first World Humanitarian Day campaign um, on the back of the huge campaign they did with Beyonce. So I walked in and I had to fill some big shoes because they had Beyonce at the General Assembly, which was just like mind-blowing. And they had like millions of people involved in the campaign. So... Um, you know, we sort of took that back to the roots of what World Humanitarian Day was. And I really focused on that campaign. And it was like, you know, six to 12 months of working out how to best communicate around World Humanitarian Day, which marks the passing of 22 humanitarians who were bombed in Baghdad. Um, so it has a very strong and symbolic meaning. And so we, we moved from sort of just this formulaic, you know, it's a day, we have to mark the day, we should do something, to bringing in creative agencies, to bringing in actors, to bringing in influencers, to understanding how to communicate through, you know, content, which started to blow up a few years ago, um, and then influencer marketing. So it's, you know, as the trends of communication world have moved, so have we at the UN, and I think that that's a testament to the strength of being a little bit flexible and a little bit agile and really at the core of it, understanding who you're talking to. So I think that's how, I don't know if that answers the question. I've moved with the times of the way comms has and the way that the that OCHA has had to evolve to engage more audience to do bigger things, if that makes sense. And you've physically moved as well because you're in the Netherlands now. That's right. I have moved. So I was in New York and then I had the opportunity to move to Paris which I did for a couple of years and I worked for UNESCO. That, I have to say, was the most challenging thing. I thought New York was really hard, but actually moving to another country where you don't speak the language and trying to get a job in comms, like what was I thinking? It was insane. Uh, but I will admit it was for love. So, you know, <laughs> I went. <laughs> and I was just uh, lucky. I mean, maybe not. That It was a really hard. That was really hard. So did, did you get transferred there or did you have to, was that part of your same role, a new position? No, or? I quit. I quit my UN job, which, you know, no one really does, to be honest. But, you know, love. So, and Paris, obviously. So I quit and I, I arrived in Paris and it was great. Like I had a great time for the first six months. I mean, I was very nervous about leaving New York and my job and, and what have you, but I was lucky that I had the international experience with the UN because, of course, UNESCO is based in Paris. And so I just looked at their consultancy job. So it was a consultancy. It was a six-month consultancy. And because I'd run big campaigns in New York, I was able to run the big campaign in Paris for World Radio Day, um, which is quite an experience because I had to have a French intern do everything for me because I had to communicate in French. Wow. So, and then I started to learn French and I now can't speak it because I've been out of the country for so long, but I did for a little, a little minute there. 
so then that was great. And then I came back to New York and got my old job back. Just uh, it was uh, it was good timing. Actually, I was wrapping up my time in Paris and we were moving back to New York. So I went back to the role and then we were offered the opportunity to uh, live in, and work in The Hague, essentially. Uh, we moved, we decentralized. So we've we've tried to move some of our comms and our people around the world so that we're a little bit more global. And and now I'm here. So I chose to live in Amsterdam because it's a little bit more vibrant, was just starting to after the pandemic. Um, and my office is in The Hague, which is great because I'm close to Europe, I'm near Paris. Uh, it was a good lifestyle choice um, and an interesting one to work. I would say I mostly work New York hours um, to keep up with the team, but that's fine. It's, it's a nice balance. So what are you responsible for at the moment and, and, and where does your footprint extend? Because I imagine there's, there's comms people dotted around the world. There's probably agencies that you utilise or, or perhaps not. Um, so when you're coming up with campaigns or you're executing them, uh, how, how, what components are you responsible for? So I... My roles evolved as we were speaking about. So I did, I looked after campaigns, sort of like there's the head of campaigns for last year when we were um, transitioning over, which means, and honestly, look, you know, titles at the UN don't really mean much because we all do the same sort of thing. It's really the level that you're at. Um, so I look after campaigns globally, um, and that essentially means with with one other person. And that essentially means... <laughs> Exactly that. So we will have an advocacy brief or an objective that we need to hit and I will then onboard a creative agency, maybe a PR agency, but we do a lot of that in-house. And I do from inception through to execution and everything in between. So I mostly look after – my strength is planning. So I do planning and organisation and I make sure that things get done on time and I manage the team to make sure that – People are doing what they need to do when they need to do it and delivering it. So it's more, it's not a traditional PR role anymore. I've moved away from that to more campaign management, more project management, um, more program management, they call it in the States. For example, we had a Syria advocacy campaign that we needed to launch this March to mark the 10-year anniversary of the Syrian crisis. And I worked with the Syrian office. So we have, and I don't know the number and I should um regional offices and country offices that each have a comms officer. They call them PIOs, so public information officer. And we work from a headquarters point of view with the the country PIO and we devise advocacy campaigns or advocacy comms, strategic communications, that pushes the advocacy point from a local objective and a local point of view and then we we tap in from a HQ point of view because what we can offer is a global um infiltration we can we can deliver the globe and they can sort of deliver their their country audiences or their country influences or their country advocacy which may be pushing and pulling on government maybe not you know depending on what what we're allowed to do in Syria it's extremely political so we're very very careful with what we communicate about and I worked very closely with those guys and we delivered something amazing it's one of the most um it's something I'm the most proudest of working at the UN we were able to get a hundred Syrian testimonials from inside Syria using WhatsApp Um, and we asked them what they felt after 10 years of crisis and we just got the most beautiful, beautiful 
words back. I mean, heartbreaking and amazing at the same time to show this resilience. And we scored it to some music from a Syrian clarinetist who lives and works in New York, actually. And we combined that with a creative agency in Spain. So we worked wow. with New York, with Spain, with Damascus, and with London as well, because some of the team is there, to create this, um, this four-minute soundscape, which we launched uh, across Europe with um, one of the television networks, and then obviously on social as well, and with Carnegie Hall. So... Oh, goodness. It's a it's a truly global role and I cannot do it without the support of the country officers because it's really up to them what we need to communicate and the sensitivities around it. And then we just try and figure out how we do that with the most empathy and respect and grace that we possibly can. It's a very good job. I'm a very, I'm very, very lucky. I um, I particularly like the sound of the role that you're in now that has evolved into a more project management because that is my strength as well. Like I'm really good at, at strategic side of things and mm-hmm. executing and keeping people keeping people to timelines and yeah I um yeah the sound of that role sounds fantastic to me yeah I, love, I live so if you leave let me know yeah okay sure <laughs> um no I live for a spreadsheet and I think that's probably something that's worth saying right like what what you start out as this is for everyone you we we're sort of keyholed into a in a into a position right where we think that we have to be this thing we have to be a PR person, and that means we have to do key messages, we have to do media outreach, we have to do X, Y, and Z. And that's just, I don't know if it's like a sign of the times, but it's just not true. You're going to evolve, and you should evolve, and you need to work out what your strengths are as a person coming into a career and spending five years doing what it is that you're doing. And I, I'm not a strong writer, so writing key messages and speeches and um, executive summaries and all of those things is not why would I do that? It makes me sweat. So I'm stronger in planning and strategic thinking and really execution of of, um, of that type of thing. And so that's somehow what, how I've maneuvered what I'm doing. And then, you know, obviously now I'm doing influencer outreach because isn't everyone. And that's just fun. That's just the best bit of the job, right? I get to speak to everyone's agent and nightmare. no one ever wants to do anything for free, even for a cause such as Syria or whatever it is, um, but fine, that's fine. It's a, it's a it's a good bit of the job. In you know, I get up every morning because I have a purpose, and that's mm. regardless of whether it's Syria or if it's selling airline seats, whatever it is. If that's the thing that you want to do, health and wellness, finance. It, if you have the purpose, um, it's you you'll get up and you'll do it, and that's really what you eventually want to look for. You, I think everyone listening now would probably. You have to cut your teeth. You have to do the hard work. You have to do shit you don't want to do. And then you get yeah. to do the good stuff. And I think try and find a connection. If you're lucky enough to work in a comms role in an industry that you really connect with, then fantastic. And I was that. And I worked in television for almost 12 years, I think. And I loved working in television. It ticked all my boxes. However, I got to the end of that time and really thought about it. And I was not enjoying getting up every day. I love the people I worked with. I love the um, the television shows and the and the talent that I work with. But, you know, I worked on a lot of reality TV shows um, at Channel 10 where I was a PR manager for um, four or five years. And if it wasn't a dancing show, it was a singing show. And if it wasn't a singing show, it was a cooking show. And if it wasn't a cooking yeah. show, then it was, you know, so – and they just kept on repeating because that, that is the programming and that certainly was the programming when I was there. And I just started thinking – actually, I don't love this. You know, I, I love 
I love the work, but I don't necessarily love the industry anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I transitioned into the industry that I do love, which is hospitality and restaurants and bars and all that kind of stuff. And who knows, maybe down the track that'll change again. But I think yeah. um, when you have the opportunity to to reflect on what it is that you enjoy, not only the the um, the roles and responsibilities you enjoy, but the industry and what and what you can are connected with and what are you passionate about? And like you said earlier in the conversation, you know, what makes you get up every morning and go, I can't wait to do this or have a crack at this or try and figure out this problem or have the opportunity mm-hmm. to change people's minds about a product or about a mm-hmm. service or about a campaign, whatever it may be. I think that's really important once you kind of cut your teeth to mm-hmm. really factor into it. Otherwise, you'll just get burnt out and, and you know, it, and that's, I think, from any career, you know, you, you need to have something that makes you connected to it. And I think we have to accept that that's okay to want. I think we have to understand that we don't have to get up and hate what we do. We really don't. And I hope no one starts out like that. I think you have to I think you have to do the hard work and maybe you're not going to have your dream job straight out of university and who the hell knows what dream job it is, right? When they you don't and you're not supposed to. But eventually it has to be something that resonates with you. And that's not an esoteric thing and it shouldn't be scary and it shouldn't be like I have to do my passion or what is my passion? What is my passion? Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. It I just loved what I did because of the people and it resonated with me and I was I cried at work. I hated it some days. I didn't know what I was doing. I was certainly well above, you know, it was, I was out of, um, what's the thing? Out of your comfort zone. Yeah, that'll, that'll do. Exactly. Totally. Most days, most days, but it pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. But ultimately d- deep down, I knew that it was, you know, I loved it. And I think we have to aim for that in any job that we do. And I think do not get caught up in trying to know what your passion is when you're just starting you will figure it out and if you know already great and if you don't don't worry about it just do things just say yes do things try it be really gracious and grateful about it but if it really makes you unhappy just stop because life is far too short I think just try and be really good at whatever it is you're doing and if you're working in the industry or in a job or with people that you're not really connecting with um you know, at the same time, you have to have a bit of a practical lens and maybe the current work environment you're in will not allow you to chop and change jobs as much as you would like. And, you know, there are things restricting you from being able to move around as you want to. So then just really try and focus on doing whatever job you're doing to the very best of your ability, sucking all the knowledge you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're within an agency, try and get some experience off a different range of clients. If you're working in-house somewhere, try and understand different departments, even if they're totally unrelated to comms, you know, I think just try and suck in as much information as you can. So when you are in the position to look for something else, then you're going at it from a stronger standpoint. I think that's super good advice. I don't think the answer is to get in there and be like, I had a bad day, so I need to leave this job. Because the hard things are the things that make you, right? If you can face a challenge... And you can get through that and you can, and it, it, it's okay to be a little bit messy at the beginning, right? Like if you're going to, 
muck around or screw it up or hate it for a minute, that's okay too. Um, but I think you're right. Perseverance is a very, very good, strong trait to have uh, because everything's impermanent, right? The good and the bad. And so if you can persevere um, to a point that it's reasonable, I think you gain so much more out of that. And you also become respected within yourself and within your organization and within the industry. Um, and do everything. Say yes to everything. Do Even if it doesn't seem like it should be your role, just say yes. Just try. And I think go to a lot of functions and meet a lot of people. And, and you know, if you really don't love what you're doing, find things outside of that that can help you get through the day. Go to function. Can you go to functions in Australia now? You can, yeah. I had a... Yeah, I organised a 250-person event. A couple of oh, my God, ago. so jealous. We're, like, literally just coming out of, you know, lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, so I, I'm, I'm with you. I think, you know, helping and changing is never a great thing um, unless it's really bad. But perseverance and, and take, taking things as a challenge, very strong, strong thing to develop. Okay, so to sum up, are there any other pieces of advice you would have for someone who is just starting their PR career? They may be you know, at university or at college or just doing a PR course or just started the role, what is anything that you wish you had known when Mm. you were getting started? For me, um, I was just hungry for knowledge. So whilst I was doing my design degree, I did a PR certificate at TAFE because I think I already knew that I wanted to write, even though I'm a terrible writer, right? So that's the thing. Doesn't matter. Terrible writer, wanted to write. Um... Or at least communicate, let's say that. Um, I mean, put me in front of a camera, I'm much better. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's the thing. You just, you have to stay hungry at the beginning. And it's tough because I know it's super competitive now and everyone's really going to, there's one degree isn't enough these days. You've got to have two and you've got to have a master's and you've got to have all of this experience. And I think that's good. I think that's what you should do. I think it's just trying to really get exposure. I think it's exposure to everything and asking questions and finding people that yeah. you respect and following them really. And, and I don't know. Yeah. So totally don't be afraid to ask questions. I think, you know, you mentioned this earlier on in the chat as well. I think the more questions you can ask, the more context you have about why you're doing something, if you've, if you've been mm. given a role to do or a task to do, and you know you don't really understand how it fits into the bigger picture then then ask try and Mm. find out what you know why why is this important part of the campaign or what how does this um filter into something else that another team member is doing um or you know if you're in a meeting and you're asked to come up with some ideas for something ask why ask how this is coming about why this why they chose to have an event or what's you know what's the purpose of this what's and sometimes yeah yeah sometimes it may be that it's because you don't understand it because there isn't a purpose and that might encourage people exactly. to go hang on a second why are we doing this? You know, we're just doing it because the client said, or, the, or my manager said, you should do this. But um, maybe there's a better idea that you can come up with that will achieve those those goals and objectives. That is really, really good advice. I think that that's what I would impart on people is always, and you don't have to ask why out loud, but for communications especially, because we can get carried away with likes and awareness, right? Awareness is a great one yeah. for us. 
Why? Why are you wanting awareness? Who are you talking to? Why do you want them to know about this? What are you hoping to achieve? That is literally what I ask every day of every campaign because it is so easy to get carried away with the good stuff, right? But at the yeah. end of the day, we need to, we, there is a KPI, there is an objective, and there is something we're trying to do, whether it's money, awareness, to, you know, create change, um, to change perception, to change behavior. There is a purpose to what it is that we're doing. And I think you will be very um, well-placed if you are the person that's always asking yourself or others why and making sure that strategic element through any anything that you're doing is there. And I think that is the perfect place to end this chat. Thank you so much for your time today, Belle. That was really great. Thank you so much for having me. No worries at all. And if you are enjoying the PR podcast and are listening via Apple, I'd love if you could spend 30 seconds giving the podcast a quick rating and review. Thanks for listening to the PR pod. For more expert tips on working in PR, head to www.theprpod.com.